Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The big electron, the big electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. What's Bobby talking about here? There are monsters out in the cosmos that can swallow entire stars. Yeah. Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it? Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron on KCU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. And I'm Anahita. And we're so glad that you're here with us today. We have a really cool show uh, today. We have a special guest. Um, she'll be joining us in just a few seconds. Uh, but in, before we get started, I want to remind you that if you want to get in touch with us or you have any questions, you can contact us here on studio at 573-882-8262. You can also text us at that same number. You can find us on our Facebook page where we are, The Big Electron, or you can also email us at thebigelectron.kcu at gmail.com. <sighs> Okay. With that, <laughs> all piece, the different ways to contact us. Yes. So if you so many options. Yes. If you have any questions, you should totally. You, there are many many ways to get in touch with us. Um, so with that, Anahita, why don't you get us started? Okay. Today we have with us Dr. Leah Brandt, and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, it's great to be here tonight. Thanks for having me. I actually work here on campus at the MU Center for Health Ethics. We're located and attached to the medical school, but we represent uh, several different health disciplines and serve actually the entire state of Missouri. We address uh, ethical issues in practice, not only here within our health system, but we also educate at different levels across the university system. So undergraduate, graduate, um, and also in the medical school, of course. And then we uh, serve as a resource to a lot of our rural partners and long-term care facilities, smaller hospitals across the state of Missouri. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't realize that you uh, worked with rural rural areas of Missouri. Um, do, you, do you think you spend equal amounts of time on or more time with the rural areas? <laughs> you know, honestly, I think most of our time is actually spent here on campus, although uh, we we would like to increase our visibility so that we are more of a resource across the state. Mm -hmm. um, we do have some partners in long-term care facilities that uh, once they know we're there, they access us quite a bit when they have different questions. Uh, but across the board, I'd say primarily we're serving uh, our campus constituency. Okay. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about how you got started sure. on bioethics? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I actually took a rather roundabout route to get into bioethics. I might be a little bit different than most of the bioethicists out there. I actually started as an occupational therapist and I was at Creighton, uh, took a lot of courses in bioethics and health ethics, got very interested in the, uh, the content. And so I focused my doctoral dissertation on health ethics. I went to the Netherlands. I did comparison studies of the 
Dutch and American healthcare systems, oh, looking cool. at healthcare access and end of life decision making, those sorts of things. And then I also have a master's in bioethics and health policy from Loyola University Chicago. So that allowed me to delve deeper in an interdisciplinary environment into bioethical discourse. And then I'm doing research right now, actually for my PhD, looking at the effects of digital media and impact on healthcare decision making and clinical ethics. So um, it's been kind of fun, but I've taken a rather odd route. Most mm-hmm. people I think that go into bioethics have a background in nursing or uh, medicine or things like that usually. Well, so how did you get into, I'm sorry, if I could ask one more question. <laughs> how did you get into um, occupational therapy? Were you always interested in that in regards to its science or was it? I was actually. Um, so I, my mom is a speech language pathologist. And so I always was looking at the rehab area as well as medicine and some, some different, uh, different opportunities there. But occupational therapy, I found fascinating because we were looking at the psychology and the volition and the motivation of getting people um, to engage in their health decisions Mm -hmm. and what it takes to get people to uh, want to rehab, to be motivated to do that. And there's a huge component of that to occupational therapy that you don't find in your typical health disciplines. And a lot of people don't know that about OT, but that's what really fascinated me about Mm -hmm. the career field. I guess that does make sense. I had like a hurt shoulder for a while just from sleeping uh-huh. on it. It took me a really long time to just make the call <laughs> to get an appointment. I can relate to that. <laughs> so how does one get involved in the center of bioethics? Um, so you work there. How do you come about to become a bioethicist? And then now you can, um, you sort of become a consultant um, yes. for for other folks. Yeah, so we actually do offer a graduate certificate in health ethics. The certificate is offered through the Department of Health Management and Informatics. So often we have individuals who have gone through a master's in healthcare administration or a health discipline, OT, PT, nursing, medicine, and they're interested in health ethics. So then they actually uh, do that focused intensive, that certificate. Now, if you're going to actually work as a clinical ethics consultant, generally you're going to need to do ongoing training um, whether that be in, in clinics or in different continuing education courses or going on to at least get a master's degree. But um, we help facilitate that through our center. We have a website, which is www.ethics.missouri.edu. And so if you're interested or any of the listeners are interested, feel free to go to the website and they can contact me or our center administrator through that site. Okay, cool. cool. So uh, there are a couple of topics that you you kind of have more specialty in. Sure. Yeah. Um, so one of which is vitamin K deficiency. Right. Could you give us a little background on sure. what's going what on? Is, yeah. What, what is vitamin K deficiency? Because yeah, before we even talked to you, we were totally unaware that this thing had existed. So for, for those of us who are or were until very recently completely clueless about this condition, please let us know what's going on. All right. So first off, I want to just have a disclaimer here that I'm not a physician. So when Mm -hmm. I'm dealing with uh, issues with uh, declining vitamin K shots, those types of things, uh, I'm acting as a liaison between the family and the, the medical team. But I can tell you kind of general overview. Vitamin K is, uh, it's a nutrient that babies uh, do not have a lot of because it's developed over time in their bodies and that you can't absorb it very well through breast milk. Mm. So when babies are born, they have a 
they already have low levels of vitamin K. So I honestly, until I started working in this area and helping with these conversations, didn't realize that all babies actually get a shot into their muscle when they're born, and it's a shot of vitamin K. And what that does is that protects them because vitamin K helps uh, you clot, so helps your blood clot so that you don't bleed. And so when they get the shot of vitamin K, it prevents um, late onset as, as well as uh, bleeds that can happen right away after they're born. What we're generally concerned with with vitamin K is that late onset bleeding that can happen because there usually aren't any signs that anything is going wrong with the baby, but then they can have an intracranial bleed that can cause long-term cognitive def deficits or even death. So since around the 1960s, all babies have been getting a shot of vitamin K um, in order to prevent that from happening. And one shot is sufficient. One one shot is sufficient. So there are other countries that offer an oral a dose of vitamin K, but then you have to have that dose for several weeks after birth in order to have the same kind of prophylactic effect so that you don't bleed into the brain. So, But the one shot in the muscle right after birth is all it takes to prevent prevent these kinds of situations. And this shot, babies have been getting this for a long time now. They have. They have been getting this, and I, I can't exactly quote the exact date, but yes, from around the 1960s um, in the U.S., babies have been getting the shot. Great. So um, then that's been more or less something unknown to many of the people receiving it or well, babies receiving it. Well, optimally, of course, I'm looking at it from an ethics standpoint, right? So we we would tell the families we're going to go ahead and take them and give them their shots. And that's often what is probably said. Whether the healthcare team goes into a lot of detail as to what shots exactly they're getting and those types of things, I can't speak to whether that's always done in the best practice manner. So what we're really trying to do now is to be more transparent and, hey, these are the shots that your, babies will, your baby will get after birth and these are the reasons why um, we're doing that. Um, they also get a couple other things, some ointment in their eyes that um, helps uh, to protect them. And again, is so that uh, it prevents blindness from bacteria and other things. So there's a few things that happen right after birth. Um, I think I'm probably the only one in the room anyway that has had a baby. And I can tell you, you don't remember a lot after that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, whether women remembered or not or how that all transpires, it happens right after birth. So they got to take the baby away. They give them the shot and they bring them back. Okay. <laughs> so... Okay, so so what has become recently that has made now parents be more aware of this and starting to decline right. for their babies to have the vitamin K shot? So uh, one of the things that we're finding with declination of different um, medical recommendations, right? Mm -hmm. So anything from vitamin K to vaccines, a lot of it has to do with an increased kind of distrust, I think, of the medical field. Um, there's also a lot of ways to access information. And so the Internet in particular, we find that people want to go to the Internet to find out what's happening. And then you get divergent perspectives. Some of that information is based on very good science and some of it is not. And so it's hard to differentiate um, what uh, what information out there is accurate and what information isn't. Right now, if you go to the internet, you will find a lot of websites that talk about vitamin K is bad, that uh, you, know, you shouldn't get this shot because uh, your baby doesn't really need it, things like that. So um, individuals that really want to promote more of a natural healing approach uh, have a distrust of pharmaceuticals in general or, again, of the medical field. 
uh, there, there tends to be a higher decline rate. So when you mentioned that you promote uh, or you facilitate the conversation between the medical team and the parents, how how does those conversations usually go and when do they get started? Right. So what we're trying to do now, and again, I can only speak for our own health system here at the University of Missouri, but when the the woman is going to her OBGYN and they're developing the birth plan. At some point, they'll discuss probably around 24 weeks, you know, this is what will happen when you have your baby. Again, we're trying to be more clear. These are the shots uh, your baby will get and this is what they do. At that point in time, the the mom might say something like, yeah, I don't feel comfortable with that or I've read some things on the internet um, and, or I've heard from my friends that I, I shouldn't have that done. At that point in time, then the OB contacts the ethics consult service, so me generally, and the pediatrician, because the pediatrician is the one who is assuming the care of the child once they're born. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for the pediatrician to also be aware so that when they assume care of the child and get ready to give the shot, they mm -hmm. know that either the family has declined this and also have an opportunity to talk about the significant risks and uh, address any concerns that the family may have. And really, I'm just there to facilitate conversation. Uh, again, in bioethics, one of the, of course, we're looking at outcomes because we want to promote the best outcome for everybody. But we're also wanting to respect the autonomy of the family and making decisions, uh, making sure that we promote benefit to the child or clinical benefit and balancing all of those different perspectives and working through that in a way that everybody's concerns and questions can be heard. Mm -hmm. So you don't feel, so your position isn't really to be the one offering the information, just allowing the information to be readily available to those who need it. Right. And and sometimes I will uh, navigate that conversation and talk through the, the risks and benefits. Um, we have, we've really kind of laid out and mapped out at this point um, great information so that the families have the opportunity to read through the scientific literature, um, information that is uh, presented by the CDC, for example, anything like that. But for the most part, I really like the healthcare team to be there to be able to respond to those concerns since they are the ones that are assuming the care of the child um, and also are the ones that can best speak to the clinical benefit and the clinical risks associated with declining or, or getting any kind of vaccination or a vitamin K shot. Mm -hmm. So ideally, you're helping the medical team or the, the doctor primarily to provide that information. Yes. Okay. And and so communication is one of those things where, you know, I have a lot of great physician friends. Um, some of them are excellent communicators. Some of them, that isn't always their strong suit. I think we've <laughs> all, you know, had those situations where we sometimes see variability. Mm -hmm. uh, and so mm -hmm. I'm trained in communication techniques to start with inquiring to learn, establishing common ground, making sure that all voices are heard. Also, what I often find as a clinical ethicist is that the healthcare team, they think they're speaking in plain language many times, but because of the complexity of what they're saying, I as the lay person in the room can say, I just heard this, is that what you meant to say? Or I didn't really understand what you were saying to help make sure that everything is very clear. So they they may have forgotten that medical and English are two different languages. I think they are a little bit different. <laughs> 
That's something we hear from a, about a lot of scientists. About a lot of scientists. Yeah. I was just gonna. I, I was just typing this actually. Uh, do you think there's a, a similarity between what we're hearing this big buzzword saying, science communication? We need to get better at communicating science. Why are we doing this? Why are we putting our dollars into <laughs> this? And it's kind of the same thing. It, it seems like it that it's kind of the same thing on the medical field, and that's why all these conversations are now starting to happen. Absolutely. And we need a facilitator such as you because people are trained in this one direct way and then they're like oh we actually don't know yes. the, how to <laughs> convey yes. it in English yes and interestingly enough the courses that I teach in the medical school are not based in necessarily the technical aspects of bioethics a lot of what I teach has to do with how do you frame the conversation in a way that your patients can understand you issues of health literacy um, issues of again making sure that the burden is on the healthcare practitioner to communicate effectively but as educators we also have to give them the tools to effectively communicate and that's where our curriculum sometimes is lacking we focus a lot on the science and the technical mm -hmm. and there's mm -hmm. so much that has to be learned in high, highly science-driven fields. And yet in medicine, which I can speak to, there is a disconnect sometimes between conveying that information and working with patients and their families. And we know that communication is also one of the most important aspects of producing a positive outcome. So mm -hmm. we, have to, we have to learn to balance both the science and the communication. So um, do you think we're getting better at it? <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not doing my job. <laughs> you know, I, I do think uh, that the curriculum has very much evolved mm -hmm. to better prepare future practitioners to do that. We do observe structured clinical examinations, for example, where we put students in with simulated patients. So the patients have a script. There are actors and actresses, oh, but they're, they're playing the role of a patient. And we're actually assessing the medical students ability to navigate the conversation, mm -hmm. not just their understanding of the technical aspects of the disease process. I see. So um, I think maybe we're going to go on a short break. And we're going to first a uh, short break and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Big Electron on KCU 88.1 F. All right. Welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Hi. We're back. <laughs> um, so hello again. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. Leah Brandt. Uh, from the uh, MU Bioethics, oh, I'm sorry, please. That's all right, Center for Health Ethics. Center for Health Ethics, yeah. I apologize. Um, I'm, I'm not observant, which is a great trait for a scientist. Um, <laughs> so, And that's um, housed in the Mizzou Hospital? It's housed in the School of Medicine, School of Medicine. but right. we have mm -hmm. faculty representation from across the entire campus. Okay. Okay, cool. so we, we were just talking about vitamin K uh, mm -hmm. deficiency and a uh, vitamin K shot essentially that yes. that newborns get um and we'd parental like to pivot decision. to up uh, and the parental decision which um can involve declining that shot so we'd like to talk a little bit uh about a topic that is related in a very particular way which is vaccines mm -hmm. and the vaccines that you receive as a child uh and as a newborn and so on um that's a pretty different uh concept biologically than vitamin k and in fact they have very little to do with each other in a medical sense, but I bet they have a lot to do with each other in terms of a medical practice sense. Yes, so. and, and certainly from a bioethics lens, I think there's a lot of similarities. Again, um, they are interventions that are preventative in nature, of course. So the vitamin K, 
there is a low risk of bleeding, but the risks are significant if that bleeding occurs. So the harm that the shot gives, which is usually just pain at the injection site, again, that's a very small harm for a, a great benefit with regard to um, the prevention of the substantial risks that can occur. With vaccines, same kind of concept, right? So you have a preventative shot. You don't know that you're going to get measles, mumps, polio, rubella, any of those things, but the shot itself will prevent development of those diseases in most instances. So the the similarities, I would say, from an ethics point and also how these issues are manifesting in practice is that it's difficult for parents to do something when they're unsure that the outcome, uh, that the child will actually get the disease. So, you know, watching your child cry when they get a shot is very hard. There's also, again, going back to the internet, hate to, you know, say that the internet is is bad, but in some instances, <laughs> uh, it, there's, it can be a lot of misinformation. So this is also where it's similar. There's been uh, information out there that says vaccines are linked to autism, for example, which is absolutely not true. There is no scientific ex evidence to, to link vaccines to autism. But because of the perceived risk of autism, the family may decline the vaccine, which actually has a very real benefit of protecting the child from diseases mm -hmm. that they may get. So it's very difficult then for the medical field to navigate something when the perceived risks of the family are inaccurate and are pe perpetuated by different information out there that is not scientifically grounded. So you mentioned, while we were talking off air, You've, you mentioned that um, a lot of it has to do with how since we've been getting vaccines for a very long time, people are not aware of what, you know, like you were saying, a polio outbreak or right. something that this is the reason why we're taking the vaccines. But since none of us now have seen it, then we're like, well, you know, I'd rather have my child not have autism right. instead of this thing that it's unknown to me because I've never seen it, neither have my parents, right. and so on. So what is interesting about the vaccine declination is that those instances have dramatically increased in industrial countries. So in the U.S., mm -hmm. in Canada, in the U.K., places like that, because one of the thoughts is that those the geographic locations have not seen these proliferations of outbreaks. So mm -hmm. I'm in my 40s, people that are having kids in their late 30s and even 40s, they were not exposed to, you know, waking up in the middle of the night next to their cousin who couldn't walk the next morning because of polio, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. or watching children in an iron lung or being exposed to extreme cases of measles, mumps, or rubella that actually can cause death. So because there is no perceived risk, then the other misperceptions out there can drive decision-making as opposed to the actual benefit that that we've seen over time in industrialized countries because we've had access to mm -hmm. vaccines. So sort of out of sight, out of mind. Exactly, exactly. The human brain, even though uh, we would like it to be always driven by scientific you know, discourse and by that information, it really has to do with what we observe and what we perceive as threats as opposed to what actually is a real threat to ourselves. Well, so with vitamin K, it could, it would affect, you know, that one child. Right. But with vaccines, we see you know, a wider spread Absolutely. <laughs> impact. So is how you approach 
those two topics different because of that or because they're so related? Is it right? Um, From an ethics standpoint, when I'm navigating the conversation with families, the approach might be similar, but there also might be other components that I add to the position. So again, you don't generally change behavior by just giving people information. But if you truly listen to the individual and what their concerns are and try and provide information that is counter to that concern, also letting them know that you know this is a public health threat. So for these reasons, we also have to inform families if their child does get sick and mm-hmm. they're not vaccinated, they need to let their physician and the public health office know right away because mm-hmm. that child might be a threat to other young children. And then we have to treat them different, different clinically when they come into the office. So if they are oh. presenting with different clinical symptoms, you'd almost have to have a situation where they're almost quarantined off um, and scheduled at a different time. So mm-hmm that we aren't putting the other patients and the other children at risk. Um, So that can be very problematic, of course, from the physician and healthcare team standpoint, because they're not only worried about that one patient, but they're worried about their other patients Mm -hmm. who, by not getting the vaccine, that family is putting multiple other individuals at risk, not just their own child. So you you said that, you know, just providing the information isn't enough. You have to have Mm -hmm. this conversation Mm -hmm. deep. I think as as a scientist, you know, just being flooded with facts would make me change my mind. But that's not the way the public works. (laughs) Not always. And, you know, a lot of our patients in public are scientists. So Mm -hmm. it's important, I think, to, again, offer information in a way that they want to receive it. Some of our our families uh, and patients are scientists. And so when you provide them with those evidence based articles Mm -hmm. and you you show them the the actual study that's been done, then they are more influenced by it. Uh, again, it's it's understanding the perspective and addressing the real concern of the individual in a language mm-hmm. that relates to mm-hmm. how they want to interpret that information. And so it it's a lot of it is listening more than communicating. And I think a lot of the healthcare team is a lot like you as a scientist. They think I'll just give them the study and they'll read it and then they'll come around to my side and everything will be great and we'll all be on the same page. And it just doesn't always work that way. Right. And we go back to communication and how exactly we just spit out the facts or this is what can happen. This is mm-hmm. looking at both sides of it's not all about yeah. outreach. It's about engagement. Engagement, yeah, yeah. which yep. is which is kind of different. So a different, um, a slightly different take on that strategy would be to simply tell them all the terrible things that could happen, mm-hmm. doom stories of various kinds about if you don't get this shot. Can I assume that is equally unsuccessful, or at least by itself? Well, from an ethics standpoint, we have to be careful there, right? Because we have to make sure that the message that we're sending and the story that we're telling is to provide information in a way that the individual can interpret it and and weigh and balance it based on their own values, as opposed to a fear tactic. So this is something else, going back just real quickly to the vitamin K, uh, some of our providers had had instances where they had to treat children that had that late onset bleeding. And so those families were willing to create videos to show their child that no longer developed past a six month or a nine month cognitive level. And so we questioned a lot, is that is that the right way to approach the conversation or is that overly influencing with a fear tactic, but it is accurate as well. So 
it, it's a very difficult balance to make sure that we're being transparent, but that we're not uh, using the material in a coercive nature. But a persuasive nature is fine, but coercion, that takes it a step too far. Thank you. That's, that makes sense. Sounds like yeah, a really that, challenging, yes. <laughs> challenging. Yeah, that's a fine to straddle, line. It, it is challenging. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you were also mentioning that when you when you're teaching these classes, that you want to make sure to tell the students, okay, you have to be able to communicate in a way for the family, not from your own beliefs, and convince them. This is what I believe, so you should do exactly what I tell you because this is what I believe. <laughs> exactly. I believe. <laughs> Firstly, it doesn't work so well, mm-hmm. you know. And secondly, understanding that your own moral belief structure, your own moral judgments, they have weight and they have value, but that's not the same thing as ethical discourse where, especially in clinical ethics, it's not necessarily how you feel, but how you act in consideration of others. So understanding their values and their perspective helps to guide the conversation so that you as a healthcare provider can support them in making decisions consistent with their own values Mm -hmm. and um, also their own clinical benefit. And does the consultation with in regards to vaccines, is it kind of the same time frame as with vitamin K? Is, you, oh, is it usually the same? Well, vaccines, of course, uh, don't happen right after birth. So you have a little bit more time. It's mm-hmm. There's a, a difference in the idea that you have a relationship, at least with your pediatrician, right? So you go for those two-month vaccinations, and they can sit down with you, spend some time talking about it. It's not as an emergent situation as the vitamin K that happens really quickly right after birth. So while there is a time frame and a schedule for when you should get vaccinations based on CDC recommendations and those types of things, if the family is hesitant, they can sometimes negotiate a little bit with the pediatrician to say, Mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable getting all of these vaccines at once, for example. So maybe we can do these two today and I can come back. Now, that is not recommended, Mm -hmm. but it's all about that give and take relationship Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, the as many children as we can get vaccinated is the most important thing. So you also don't want to alienate the patient from their pediatrician. You want to make sure that they're also getting the other care they need as a child. Mm -hmm. So it may not be medically necessary to split up the vaccines in that way, but it is acceptable in this case because it gets the job done and it maintains their relationship with their yes yes so that's that's ethics right so you can see maybe the optimal course of action but based on the values and based on respecting autonomy sometimes there has to be a little bit of give and take along the way in order to produce the best outcome while respecting the positions of all the parties involved Wow, this is hard. It, it really is. I keep yes. thinking like, well, what if you reassign the family to a different pediatrician, but then you're just kind of picking not necessarily who will Your give battles, the most accurate. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you may not have someone who's willing to provide all the information in the way mm-hmm. that the parents need it, but then they'll get what they want. It's tough. It is tough. It, and sometimes it comes down to that, where we have to transfer the care of patients to another provider who are who is more comfortable with the alternative uh, pathway or the alternative method. But again, across the board, uh, most pediatricians, I would say, I don't want to say all, but are going to support vaccination because of the overarching benefits. But it does come down to communication style because, of course, there are some risks associated with vaccination. And still, vaccinations are good, but 
some parents might want more information to be able to talk through those risks mm -hmm. in a very deliberate way, and some providers might be more equipped to do that with them than others. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this is a too off question, off topic question, but do you, I do you know if if it's possible to delay vaccination or to like first the parents say no, and then like two years later, then they're like yes. Can, can the child still get vaccinated? Yes, and, and in fact, that is the recommendation of the CDC, is that even if the family declines at that point in time, you still want to keep vaccination on the table. So, mm. you know, saying something like, well, let's revisit at your next visit. Let's revisit at the next visit. So sometimes, again, when you go on the internet, you'll hear people say, I felt bullied, you know, or, mm, you know, yeah. and so again, sure. it's this balance. So the provider is trying to do what they think is clinical beneficial. The family feels like they're pushing them into a situation, but they do need to revisit it every time they come back to the office because of the vast clinical benefit associated with vaccination. Mm -hmm. So again, mm -hmm. it's a really hard balance, comes down to some very complex communication strategies. Wow. I'm completely blown away with this. <laughs> yeah. It sounds, sounds like a very challenging, uh, set of issues to navigate, but it sounds like uh, there's a group of people working very hard at it. So thanks for doing that. Yes, yes. thank you so much. <laughs> so you work at the Center of for Health Ethics. Correct. Um, and it, it's not only about vaccinations, but uh, we actually, a couple of shows ago, we had, uh, we were talking about advanced care planning mm -hmm. and um, end of life. Right, with uh, Diana Rickard. Yes. And so um, how does, if I want to have this conversation, mm -hmm. can I contact you? Like if I'm a patient, can I go directly to you and then and ask for you to be there with my provider or does the provider have to come to you? Do I talk to my provider? How does it work to like get you in the conversation? Okay, so just to clarify, now we're talking about advanced care planning. I just wanna make sure. Or any, or deci any decision okay. that, uh, that you guys well, first, let's talk about the babies. But I do want to know if okay, I okay. have questions. Yes, How yes, 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 yes. Well, like if I, if I'm a parent, right, or will yes. be a parent, like. Mm -hmm. Can I, can I start a conversation? Of course. Okay. Yes. So this is where the similarities across the board that we can talk about the other kind of end of the spectrum, the life spectrum, if you will. But I think one of the most important thing for patients to do is to feel empowered to ask questions. And providers should be responsive to those questions. Even if it's vaccine, vitamin K, things where I'm talking about, mm -hmm. yes, we need to do those. But still, as a patient, you need to feel comfortable with that as a parent, as the patient themselves. So making sure that you you bring those forward to your provider. If you have questions about how to have that conversation or if you don't get the best response, you can always contact us as a public member, as a patient. It doesn't matter through the Center for Health Ethics. Anybody can request an ethics consult. So we do things in an informal basis where people just call and they have interesting questions about bioethical issues in the news. Um, or we have individuals that are patients and they may say, hey, I don't like how my healthcare provider responded to me. And they can call us in to help mediate that conversation. Mm -hmm. oh, they can also come in if they want to develop an advanced directive or a birth plan or something like that. I recommend going to your healthcare provider first and that you should have a good relationship with your physician, your nurse, and the rest of the healthcare team to do that. But if you want to come to us to get preliminary information or have us walk you through the process, we're happy to do that as well. And do you also have 
physicians, I assume, coming to you and saying, I don't know how to handle this situation. Yes. What do I do? Yes. And so I am one of the ethics consultants for the hospital. So most of our consults actually come from the physicians or nursing staff where it says, hey, we have this really difficult case. Uh, we're having, we're kind of at an impasse with the family. We're not sure where we go from here. Can you help us talk through this and figure out what the right course of action is? So that can be anything from an organ donation case where they're trying to make an emergent decision about organ donation to a futility case where the family may want something in the ICU and the medical team may not think it's not clinically beneficial or vice versa. And then we come in and help navigate those conversations. I kind of have an off topic question, but, um, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot too much, but if there was something um, that you've learned that you wish everybody <laughs> could know if there was like yes. one piece of that bioethics or science that you wish everybody could know yes what would that be okay so i have no stock in this book i don't didn't write the book it was a book that i had to read mm -hmm. for my bioethics training and it's a book called difficult conversations okay. that is was written by the harvard negotiation team and it talks about changing the conversations that we have so oh. that you first start it, start with inquiring to learn. So trying to understand the other person's perspective, mm -hmm. then paraphrase for understanding and then acknowledge feelings. So those three steps, I honestly, those three steps have changed my life <laughs> and they are things that I try to convey to all of my students, mm -hmm. which is start there. And, and often we feel like we're using those strategies, mm -hmm. but, Anytime that you start with trying to convey information first, you're starting with your own perspective. So if mm -hmm. when you change the dynamic by inquiring to learn and understanding the other person's perspective first, you can really navigate a lot of difficult conversations a lot more effectively. I guess I also have one more question to follow up on that. Do you ever videotape your students when they're having these conversations and play it back to them? Not yet, uh -huh. but that is part of what I want to do that I, I mentioned that I was working on my PhD for right. is that digital media and storytelling, exposing them to patient stories mm -hmm. or to the provider stories mm -hmm. and to help them communicate differently and see the other perspectives. It's kind of a postmodern approach, but that there's not always one truth, especially mm -hmm. with decision making when it comes to complex healthcare decisions. So understanding all the different perspectives in the room allows you to gather relevant information before moving forward. So part of that process will be to expose the students and patients, providers to how they sound and how that works and, and mm -hmm. navigating that and videotaping that potentially. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, so we talked this uh, off air too, a little bit about genetic counseling. Mm -hmm. Are you involved at any of that or is there a separate office that offers genetic counseling? There's a complete, yeah, there's a completely separate office group, obviously, that does the genetic counseling. So I, again, I'm not a physician, I'm not a genetic counselor, <laughs> but we will get ethics cases sometimes from our group. Uh, questions like, when do you start testing a pediatric patient for an adult onset genetic condition? For example, we've mm -hmm. had a few of those questions come up. When would it be ethically appropriate? The more that genetic testing uh, becomes more prevalent in our society, we're also realizing that there are psychological risks and different things, especially when you're talking about pediatric patients mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we had probably underestimated in the past. So we're trying to be more deliberate and intentional and aware of 
all risks involved before we just forge ahead like any technology with bioethics that mm -hmm. tends to be the problem we forge <laughs> ahead and then we're like oh oops wow oh, that ooh. caused a lot of problems <laughs> so again trying to think through uh -huh. what the consequences could be risks and benefits before actually acting in it in bringing in those technologies mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, you do a lot of, uh, that sounds very stressful. <laughs> like you have to yeah. keep up with all these things that are happening and it's like public health related and, and it also the like patients and it's also like you have to like step outside of everything and just be in the middle. It, it also <laughs> seems like there's this, you know, over, there might be an idea that, you know, scientists agree on, but that doesn't mean for the individual, it's what they feel comfortable doing. So handling each person as an individual while keeping the bigger goal in mind. Yeah, there's a lot of question in um, in the bioethics field right now of whether it should just be consultation where you go in and you do an assessment of you know the situation and give your advice or if it's more of a mediation. Mm -hmm. And just for sake of transparency, I tend to be more of a mediator. So getting mm -hmm. all of the different perspectives on the table so that we can establish common ground and move forward. And I'm not an expert in anything, like <laughs> in, in a way, you know, right? It's important for me to say I'm not the physician in the room. I'm right. not the genetic scientists in the room. Mm -hmm. So helping them to convey the information that is their expertise and helping the patient or client to navigate that information and apply their values to it, that that's where my skill set is. Mm -hmm. So while it does seem really diverse, I I have to be really clear every time I go into a consult that I'm not the one with the clinical expertise mm -hmm. in neurosurgery or the clinical expertise in genetic counseling. But you mm -hmm. you do speak all the necessary languages. In this well, case. you pick up a lot in this business. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> no, you do have to have certainly that scientific base and having been a clinician and having read a lot of medical charts over the years, that certainly is a skill set that you need as well when you're mm -hmm. working in this area. Well, it's easy for anybody who's doing any kind of specialty work to get so far into their field that they forget that uh, not everybody is in it. So it's certainly appreciated in that sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Well, sometimes my best skills are that I don't understand what's going on either. And then I can fairly assume that probably the patient and the family aren't understanding what's being conveyed either. So making sure we're breaking down that power differential by just saying, hey, let's, let's kind of clarify what we're talking about here is, is sometimes the best thing we can do in those situations. Right. Um, okay. Well, I want to say thank you again to Dr. Leah Brandt for joining us. I feel like you've just opened my eyes to this whole world that I should have been thinking about all along. <laughs> <laughs> But then again, we're getting our PhDs. And so we're like focused and narrowed on like right. chemistry building. Well, it's been fun. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks Thank you much. for being here. And we'll still be back. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to The Big Electron on KCAU 88.1 FM. All right. Welcome back to The Big Electron on KCAU 88.1 FM. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening also if you are listening to us uh, via our podcast. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, about a story that you, you may have seen in the news in the last week or so. Um, and we're going to introduce the key players in this in this drama. Uh, first, yeah, so introductions. So the first key player uh, that we need to talk about today is called CERN. Um, you've heard of it before if you're really into particle physics. Uh, this is the <laughs> as we all are of, because we all we are, are. Um, absolutely. Also uh, because it's like super famous and it has made 
news. Yes, it has. So everyone has heard of it. CERN is uh, the European Particle Physics Laboratory, abbreviated CERN because it's French. And um, it's um, responsible for a large (laughs) object called the Large Hadron Collider, which is a gigantic ring several miles long built underground in a remote part of Switzerland. And they use this giant ring to ram together very tiny particles at extremely high speeds uh, to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you heard of it a few years ago, we dis- well, CERN discovered the Higgs boson. Exactly. The and Higgs boson, which was this theoretical particle that isn't theoretical anymore. Because now we they know saw it, it. Yeah, they yeah, saw they, it. They observed it. They, and then the person who proposed it got a Nobel Prize in physics the following year. Yeah, so these folks are a pretty big deal, and the mm-hmm. Large Hadron Collider is a pretty big deal uh, in both a literal and a figurative sense. Well, yeah, it's a 17-mile uh, superconducting machine. <laughs> Interestingly yeah. enough, so, CERN so also has a lot of data processing research. Yep. So they're also really big on data processing. I don't know if I stole your thunder there. Not at all. A little bit. <laughs> My thunder is stolen. I think most of it is data processing. Uh, like, they do a few experiments, but right. it's so much on them. That, and they're looking for this unknown things that they have to process so much mm-hmm. data. So a lot of um, innovations in data mm-hmm. processing happening yep. there. Right. Including the World Wide Web. Indeed. So yeah. uh, if you'd like more information on CERN, mm-hmm. there are abundant sources out there about them, including a recent documentary film called Particle Fever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, okay, so we've, we properly introduced CERN. Let's introduce the other player in our drama this week, which is the weasel. What um, is a weasel? A weasel is a mammal of the genus Mustela of the family <laughs> Mustelidae. That is a quote from Wikipedia. Um, these are small carnivores. They range over most of the northern part of the earth. Um, they, uh, they hunt smaller they hunt. things. <laughs> they hunt smaller things than themselves. They look very cute. They they are. They have these adorable white patches on their belly. Anyway, never mind that. Um, but they're, so they're related to... To beaver? particle physics? Cats, cats, dogs. Also, beater, beavers and wolverines. Oh. <laughs> like, isn't that right? <laughs> okay, absolutely. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you so we have something a, new every day. We so. have our two key players. So there's two possibilities into this. The first one is that they discover via particle physics how weasels are made. I think that should be the story. That's the most logical. But, right. But unfortunately, <laughs> okay. what we're dealing with here is a, is a great battle of the wills <laughs> between between CERN and their Large Hadron Collider and the Weasel family, or in particular, one individual member of the Weasel family. Uh-huh. Oh, the which, Weasel. Which appears to have crawled into the uh, electrical wiring of the Large Hadron Collider and shut the entire thing down oh by, by <laughs> chewing on something inconvenient. Um, so, um, I see as here. you had said a moment ago, Jackie, I think there may be some sort of, how, how did you put it? Uh, it isn't clear whether the animals are trying to stop humanity from unlocking the secrets of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> it says here yeah. that he not, he or she, I'm not sure. Uh, not its way through a 66 kilovolt transformer. So, kilovolt, oh my right. god. <laughs> that, I, I will say, maybe this is a, a bit of a spoiler for the end of our drama, but this did not turn out too well for the weasel either. That's a lot of volts, it turns out. Yeah, that is a so, lot of volts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Repairs will take, not for the weasel, <laughs> <laughs> for the large hit, hitter collider. 
Uh, repairs will take a few days, but getting the machine fully ready to smash things again, uh, <laughs> it'll be another week of two. So, like, we're looking at mid May. Wow. Wow. This is so Jeez. sad. I will say the that this scientific is- progress held up by <laughs> a week. Two weeks. So this is not the first time a small animal no. has tried to take down. Back in 2009. Right. Yeah. Uh, a bird is believed to have dropped a <laughs> food item a- onto a critical <laughs> electrical system. A baguette. To be exact. I'm, I'm reading the same thing that you all are, and I'm, I'm a bit surprised. I did not know that birds made baguettes. Well, I, I thought that uh, <laughs> well, you I thought a, that, that was a human. Food. Well, remember they're so. in Geneva, and it's just oh. uh, Geneva. It's like bordered with France. So. so even the birds make and prepare their own baguettes. Oh, and, I may have, mis- France, I may have yeah. misunderstood. <laughs> I think that's what they do. <laughs> I may have misunderstood. The or maybe yeah. it just stole it from someone's lunch, and then you know, as they were chasing it, then it's oh. like, well, whatever you want it, I, here it goes, and then it just decided I, to. I <laughs> suppose very critical. I really like this quote from this one article. It said. Um, the bird got off light in comparison to the weasel. It only lost oh. its lunch. <laughs> wow. Well, that's uh, that's unfortunate. Speaking of animals, uh, this is not the only problem that has happened. Um, not only at the Large Hadron Collider, but there's a particle accelerator up in Illinois. Uh, and back in 2006, raccoons conducted a, quote, coordinated attack on the accelerator. Oh my gosh. <laughs> really? They're out for us. They, they know. don't want us to know the secrets exactly. of the universe. They figured out They're that we're all... really bad for the entire animal. I can only assume my sister's dog is doing the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this happened at Fermilab back in 2006. And uh, the report says uh, at 1.24 a.m., operations reported a raccoon attack in the gallery. <laughs> Fortunately, wow. by 1.53, a joint force of operators managed to drive <laughs> the raccoons out of the their hastily made fortifications. Well. I'm having way too much fun reading this report. The, well, to... Oh, but then back. Uh, so this was at 2 in the morning, but they came back at 4 p.m. They the came raccoons back. came back. Oh, they're doing a counterattack. KCU Columbia, 88.1 FM. Yeah, they came back and they uh, a counterattack on the division's headquarters. A counterattack. Well, it would appear we're going to have to mobilize our forces again for the army of weasels, which no doubt will be attempting to take down. I mean, there's a long our research history institutions of, all over well, all just, over the world. There's a long history of animals interfering with science, like the first computer bug was a moth. An actual bug? An actual bug oh, in a computer. Oh, that's what we call it, bug? Yeah, it was an, I believe it was a moth. That's, <laughs> blew our we minds. just blew our minds, and I hate that. <laughs> and with that, we're going to call it off. Thank you for listening. You're listening to The Big Electron on KCU 88.1 FM. We're signing off. Have a great night.